Well, 4th of July is just on 4th of July. That's today, and happy 4th of July. We're starting our midweek meal, Bible study, and prayer, 630 to 8, every Wednesday. I have two, maybe three family, individual family units, et cetera, in the pipeline to facilitate meal preparation, whether they're getting pizza or steak or whatever else they want to do. If you're interested in what that would look like, what that would involve, please see me. We need, I think, at least five more. We're going to do a rotational. Every two months, you would be up, and I think it's going to be a great time for us to come together. We'll be saying more. We've said a lot already, but I need five more family units, so reach out if you can do that. Um, actually, we have uh, Deborah and Josh are going to do one of the uh, eight-week uh, in the uh, rotation, so thank you for that. So I, I, I think I still need five. Good to go? All right, Ty, it's so good to see you back here. You have run the gauntlet with COVID and the surgery and everything else, so we are glad you are here. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Hey, would you stand to your feet uh, as I read God's Word? I'm going to read from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. This is a message in which I will go through various scriptures, so we are not going to walk a text, but I will arrive at this text at some point. Acts chapter 17, well-known passage. Paul's at Mars Hill, and you see what goes down. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So it reads the word of God. Now, we need the spirit to move, right? Last thing we want to do is check in the box Christianity. Last thing we want to do is just mail it in. We want to be present. We want our eyes opened, our ears unstopped, our hearts stirred, our brain illuminated, and our hands and feet activated so we can walk out of here and put flesh and bone on the text that God has for us today. So will you pray with me? Father, we know from Revelation chapter 5 that all history is streaming towards Christ being glorified and worshiped and adored by his people forever. The text says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Heaven is never going to get over the cross, nor should we. Would the cross become more precious to us today? Would you cause us to repent of where we, where we need to repent being assured of your saving love for us in Christ. We've got nothing to hide and nowhere else to run but you. And Lord, I ask that you would, you would enhance my capabilities of preaching your word far beyond what I have in natural capacity. Lord, would your spirit fill me right now? And would your spirit fill us, Lord? It says in Acts chapter 4 that when they prayed, the Holy Spirit filled them and they spoke the word of God with boldness. We want one of those moments, Lord. We want one of those moments, Lord, where you come to your people in a fresh way and we walk out of here. We might not remember all the bells and whistles in details, but we'll say, like they said in 1 Corinthians, surely God was in our midst. So, Lord, just as incense in the Old Testament gave a tangible uh, sense of your presence, would we tangibly feel your presence here this morning? 
Would you rivet our eyes on the end of history because there's a lamb standing over us right now, slain but standing, ruling and reigning, and who alone can satisfy our human hearts. And we pray this in his name, amen. All right, you can grab a seat. I don't know about you, but I really enjoy the July 4th holiday. I mean, any reason to have a cookout? I like seeing the red, white, and the blue. I like when I'm able to go to a parade, cool floats, and old veterans, and just the fireworks themselves. I love how July 4th puts freedom on blast. And nobody caught that fireworks on blast. Okay, all right. That's, that's as far as I want to go. I, I think Juneteenth is a great thing because it, it, it's, 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 it marks a step in our nation trying to fulfill her beautiful ideal, ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all. I mean, there's a reason, and if you've traveled across the, the world, you know there's a reason people are wanting to stream into America from all different directions. There's freedom. You're here this morning because you are free to worship, right? We prayed in our pre-service prayer meeting uh, for people who don't have that freedom. I think celebrating freedom is a good thing. Do you? But all of the freedom I just described pales in comparison to the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And the reality is, there are going to be people today all over, millions, waving red, white, and blue, or perhaps a Juneteenth flag a few weeks ago, red, black, and yellow, waving all those flags and celebrating those kinds of freedoms, good things, but yet who do not have spiritual freedom, are actually still slaves to sin, dead in trespasses and sins. And in bondage and under the dominion of darkness and the dark one himself, the devil. We've been talking about revival. In revival, it's like Christians come out of their spiritual coma. They, they, they come back to life in that sense. And in revival, people then start getting off that hospital gurney, pulling out the life support tubes, getting off that, you know, ugly looking hospital robe, putting on a fresh set of duds, and moving out. And, and as you get up in spiritual renewal, you not only see that there are people still laid out on gurneys who need revival, you see there's some people who are still in graves, they're dead in sin. And Jesus Christ made it very, very clear that you can have Every other kind of freedom, but not have spiritual freedom. And if you don't have that kind of freedom, he actually says you really have no freedom at all. Did he not say in Mark chapter 8, what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his what? Soul. So in revival, this is what happens. 
People rise up above the cultural rhythms of society, which can be very good things. July 4th, Juneteenth, and on and on. But they, they, they may celebrate some of those things, but they rise above those cultural rhythms and they get gripped by this black and white, crystal clear reality. There are lost people who are dying without Christ and perishing. And I just think that needs to grip us. May 9th, Nick preached out of that powerful uh, testimony of the Apostle Paul in, in Romans chapter 10 when he says, I wish myself were accursed, right, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I think this is so important. The Lord, just the Lord led me back to this topic. And what I want to preach to you about this weekend and this Sunday in this revival series, on this day, July 4th, I want to preach to you on helping people find true spiritual freedom. Very simple message. Helping people find true spiritual freedom. Now, I'm not gonna, we're not going to talk about how to share the gospel, like the Romans Road or the circle uh, approach. All that's good stuff. We actually have some training that will be coming up in the fall. What I want to hit, however, is the mindset you must have if you're going to be about the master's business, if you are going to help people find spiritual freedom, all right? So there should be a handout. If you don't have a handout, raise your hand. If we can, uh, and if I could get another one too, because I'm going to reference it, and I can't remember exactly what I typed, so thank you so much. I'm going to hang three words. I'm going to hang my points on three words. They're ABCs. Awareness, boldness, and confidence. Awareness, boldness, confidence. What are the words? Awareness, boldness, confidence. What are the words? Awareness, boldness, confidence. Awareness, boldness, confidence. Can you get to it? I will. Okay. The first thing to create this mindset of helping people find true spiritual freedom is we must be hit with a fresh awareness of lostness. That makes sense? A fresh awareness of lostness because here's what happens. I think the momentum of life the responsibilities of life, the frenzied activities of life combined with the comforts of life numb us to the reality that people without Christ are lost. We even say, when we do think about it, they need Jesus. What if we said also they're perishing, right? That would kind of maybe break open the smelling salts before our nose, I say to you again that the busyness of life, the momentum of life, the comforts of life numb out the reality that people are lost. Jesus said, I think it's in Matthew 24, 26, he talked about as it was in the days of Noah, people were eating, right, and drinking, and then boom, sudden destruction came by way of flood. 
They're eating and they're drinking. They're caught up in the momentum of life. They're just doing life. The frenzied activity, the responsibilities. He says, so it shall be when the Son of Man returns. Now, speaking of eating and drinking and sudden destruction, when we were on the plane, you know, six of us had the, the joy of going to Oregon a couple weeks ago. I brought for the plane ride a little evangelistic booklet, about 40 pages, by a guy named Rico Tice. And in the opening chapter or two, he talks about the USS Titanic, the largest steam passenger ship that ever been built up to that date, weighing some 276, 576 tons, 114 million pounds this ship weighed. It was, it was just an architectural feat of the day. They said that not even God could sink that ship. Well, you know the story, right? It was Easter, late Easter day, about 11.50 p.m., 1912. And that massive, largest passenger steamship of the day, bam, struck an iceberg. What did people do? <laughs> it's the largest ship. This thing ain't going down. They actually kept on eating and drinking. The band kept playing. The china kept on clattering as the server served and the people dined. There were games and, and conversation and all the rest. But you know that by 2.30 a.m., that ship was fully submerged under the icy Atlantic. And all but 705 passengers out of 2,228 passengers and crewmen perished. 17 millionaires were on board, and man, they paid a handsome sum, 800 British pounds currency for a first-class fare, which afforded them many, many frivolities and luxuries, like a 11-course meal up in the, the nicest dining hall every evening. To people who scratched together just two British pounds to be way down below where it was pretty nasty so they could get to America and start a new life. Do you know that the icy Atlantic was no respecter of persons? That both the rich, those who paid 800 pounds, and the poor, those who scratched together two pounds, perished. They were eating, and they were drinking, and they had no thought about their safety until the ship finally went down, many of them. I'm just saying the momentum and the busyness of life as we live it here causes us not to think that the ship suddenly is going down, right? We're in a fallen world. Now let me add a layer to that. Adding to how the pace and comfort and stuff of life numbs us to the reality of lostness all around us is also a world and a world system that is constantly pummeling us to see people primarily in categories like ethnicity or economics. We are being pounded with that 24-7 to be super preoccupied with what a person looks like or how much money they might have in their wallet. And depending upon your skin color as compared to theirs, or your bank account as compared to what you perceive their bank account to be, you're actually being discipled in demonic ways to think of people different than you in ways that are unbiblical. Seminar after seminar, book after book, 
It's causing us to have a preoccupation with these kinds of categories. But you know Scripture comes along and does something entirely different? Scripture doesn't say that stuff doesn't matter. Of course it does. But Scripture makes it clear that's not the primary categorization. Certainly not an eternal categorization, right? Though we'll retain some of those things. Scripture calls us to relentlessly see people in one of two categories primarily. Categories that massively transcend every other category, and that without exception. What are those two categories? Well, I think you know where we're going, but, but let, me, let me talk about the Apostle Paul. Do you remember when he said, from henceforth I respect no man according to his flesh, the old version reads. Before Paul became a Christian, think about how obsessed he was with people's ethnicity, right? I mean, he, he has his Jewish brag sheet. Gentiles were dogs, right? So he, he, he actually saw the world through this primary lens of you either Jewish, and by the way, a faithful Jew, or you're a Gentile. Now he's saying, listen, of course I recognize that, but here's how I'm really deciding to look at people according to the fact that they're imago Dei, and then in Christ or outside of Christ, Right? In Romans chapter 2, verse 11, it says, God shows no partiality. So that's kind of how God looks down at us, right? But here's the verse that I want us to land. I should, I should have read it. It's a simple verse, well-known verse. 1 John 5, 12 makes this distinction so crystal clear for us. It goes like this. He that has the Son has life, and he that does not have the Son does not have life. We need to recover as the church of God a 1 John 5, 12 mindset. That you have people out there who have the Son and you have people out there who do not have the Son. To which I know somebody would say, you're, you're being so binary. Well, if your house was on fire and a fireman was called there and as he got out of his fire truck, he quickly assessed the situation. He said, okay, those are safe outside the house, out of the fire, and these people are still up in the house, in danger, in the fire. You would say to him, why are you being so binary? Would you? Or you hear that there's somebody drowning, you're swimming at Lake Michigan, and the lifeguard is called over, and the lifeguard surveys the situation, assesses it, and he says, oh, they're above the water, not drowning, they're in the water, drowning. You wouldn't say, why are you being so binary? We need some binary thinking. We need to recover this clarity. Jesus himself used that clarity. Jesus did not talk about shoats. He talked about sheep and goats. He didn't talk about wares. He talked about wheat and tares. He talked about a house that was built on a rock and a house that was built on sand. And I'm just trying to make the point that before we will ever be compelled to do something about lostness, we have to have a fresh awakening to lostness. You gotta be aware of it. So I would just say to you, between the busyness of life and the comfort of life and the stuff of life and the relentless activity of life, 
combined with the world force-feeding us with thinking about people in, in earthly categories primarily, that in the midst of all that, we forget that all around us, your workplace, your neighborhood, your school, your ball team, whatever, all around you are people who are lost. And God has actually sovereignly placed you in those respective spheres of life so that you can be an agent of his, an ambassador for Christ, to make a dent into that lostness. Now, remember Paul in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. We just read that text. That text, I want to say, as somewhat of a sanctified side trail, the text does not say what I'm about to say, but maybe Paul did this when, when he was in Athens. Maybe Paul went to a taco truck. Maybe he ordered sticks and spoons. Maybe he relaxed in the park. Maybe he went to a play. He was known to quote from a play or two. Maybe he read a book. He definitely quoted from books and poets. Maybe he went to a few athletic contests. He was known to use athletics as illustration of spiritual truth. Maybe he went swimming. Maybe he did a number of things. The point I'm trying to make along the way to make a bigger point is becoming aware of lostness around you doesn't mean that you become some kind of neurotic, neurotic basket case, an emotional wreck who doesn't do anything and enjoy life, right? We're not saying that. And I don't think that's the danger of anyone here. I've yet to meet somebody who was so consumed with lostness around them that they couldn't do anything else. But I wanted to make that point in case you hear me saying, hey, we ought to be aware about lostness. What does that mean I stop living life? No, you, you keep living life, but now you become aware of lostness. So Paul, Acts chapter 17, he's just hanging out in Athens, waiting for people to catch up with him, and it says, his spirit was provoked with him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And the Greek is like super strong. Like, it wasn't just like, oh wow, I can't believe they're doing that. No, it was like, he was, he was provoked in the spirit. He was disturbed. There's a grunting. There's a moaning. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, the idea of anguish. That's how he feels when he sees people worshiping idols. How did he see that? He saw them worshiping the idols because he saw the world, world really clearly. There are people who are either in Christ or outside of Christ. People are either saved or perishing. People who have the Son, 1 John 5, 12, or do not have the Son. And what did that awareness of that binary classification ultimately of humanity cause him to do? This is what it caused him to do. Verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, that's the next point that we need to be aware of lostness and that should compel us to boldness but let me just end this first point by saying this. Do you, are you in those spheres of life God has placed you? Now, you ever hit by the fact that, man, my friend is lost. My coworker's lost. Don't, don't just say they need Jesus, but think about what it means if they don't get Jesus, that they're, they're perishing. Do you ever think about that? Your employer, your friend, whoever. I remember I had just become a Christian probably less than a year earlier. 
Uh, my last year in the Marine Corps, we moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky. I'm working in a factory there. Uh, we went, this would have been myself, Susan, and Kevin. We went to a little festival. might have been July 4th, I don't know, Memorial Day something, in a small little town nearby. And I remember seeing, like, you know, the face painting and the food stands and the beer truck and the, the music and all that, and nothing wrong with all that at all. But I just remember, this is just a weird thing I remember, I remember suddenly feeling compelled to stand up and just start preaching the gospel, like, you know, Ezekiel in the, the watchtower, right? I just felt a huge burden. It's like I could see in that moment that people were lost and perishing, that probably the great majority of them were without Christ. I don't know, but I'm just, probably. Now, I did not stand up. And maybe it would not have been the wisest thing to do, though I think there is a place for appropriate street preaching. But I bring that up because I'm not like that most of the time. Are you? I usually don't have that, that, that sense and that awareness. People are lost. And I think if we would make a difference in this neighborhood and where God has placed us, we need to have a pervasive, persistent awareness of people's lostness. What do you think about that? There needs to be an awareness of lostness, lostness that it's this clear. There are people in Christ and people outside of Christ. Now, what's the second word? There's awareness, number one. What's the second one? Boldness. Boldness to do something about it. So there's awareness, hey, people are lost, and then there's boldness. Now, there's some things that can get in the way, like the fear of man. That's not the point of this message, though. I'm just trying to say that, like Paul, when we become aware, then we, that, can, that can bleed into boldness. And the boldness, we just read it, was that he said, you know what, I wasn't just hanging out here, but I, I see this city is full of idols. People are not in Christ. They're worshiping false gods. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. In other words, there was some intentionality there, right? He's striking up conversations to tell them about Jesus Christ. And my hope is that in my life and in your life, as we become freshly aware of lostness, then we'll be compelled to take steps of boldness to do something about it. Boldness. Did I say bulliness? Did I say brashness? No, boldness. Boldness is the opposite or antithesis of cowardness, right? of laziness. We're called to be bold with the gospel. And you might say, well, I'm no Billy Graham. I'm no Rico Tice. Well, you're not. There's only one of each of them. But you're you. Well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't really know many people who have the natural gift of evangelism. There's some. But all of us have the call of evangelism. Right? Doesn't that make sense? I mean, isn't it kind of silly to think that you would have a faith, a religion, a message that saves you from perishing, and somehow you're not supposed to tell others so they don't perish? Right? I read this article, 2012, Gospel Coalition article, that revealed that most churchgoers do not share Christ. Then it went on to say, give some kind of, put some, meat and potatoes on this. 
80% of Christians do think it's their responsibility to share people, to tell people about Christ, which would kind of make sense again. Like, if I'm believing a message that saves me, then if I care about people, well, I would want them to be saved too, right? I'm wondering about what the other 20% thought they signed on for when they believed in a Christ who saves them from perishing. But this is how it actually fleshes out in real time. 61% of Christians have not told a person how to become a Christian in six months. Okay, remember, this is a message that saves you from perishing. What, what are we talking about from perishing? What are we talking about? Being separated from God forever, right? <laughs> Let alone the glorious upside, finding the one whom you were made for, right? The only one that can satisfy the deepest cravings of your heart. But 61% of people in the last six months have not told a person how they could become a Christian. Where, where would you put yourself in that right now? 48% have not invited somebody to church. It's not a bad step to take, right? To invite people where it might be, where they might, hopefully they will hear the gospel, right? It might be different for them, but you would expect it to be different, right? They're, they're not in church. Now, as bleak as those statistics are, they're actually quite optimistic compared to a poll two years later, 2014. It says 78% of churchgoers have never, never shared the gospel. Imagine that. So this, I'm guessing this is somebody who confesses Christ. Nearly eight out of 10 have never told anyone how to become a Christian. And in the last six months, only 10% had told somebody about Christ. That's one out of 10 confessing Christians in the last six months, only one had told somebody else how to become a, how to become a Christian. And what's more, only 21% had invited someone to church, which is much easier than telling them about Christ. Not a bad thing, can be a good thing. Now, what do you think about those statistics? Am I trying to like slap anybody upside the head? No, I'm not. I'm not at all because... I, I need constant reminders about this, right? And I, I'm a pastor, but I need constant reminders. But I, I'm just trying, I, I want to ask you, where, where do you put yourself in those statistics right now? Where do you place yourself? Where do you place yourself? I think that revival is brewing when those dismal numbers begin to rise, even if just incrementally. That revival is brewing in a church when people who are being revived, they give signs of revival because they now look beyond the people still on gurneys to people who are still in graves. And they say, there are people in my life who need to be vibed. They need to come to life, period, in Christ. You've probably heard me mention several times over the last 20 months that I am in an evangelism cohort um, with the EFCA. It's, it's one of our church affiliations. And then the second year, John Glandon has signed on as our evangelism influence coordinator. And basically, the goal of this cohort is to raise the evangelistic temperature and execution of a local church, starting with influencing the leaders who then influence others. You, sh you, you have a handout. Can you hold up? You got it? One of the things that we have to do every month when we meet for three hours for our cohort is give our evangelistic temperature. 
And you can see it's very, very small print. I need my cheaters and it's still hard to read it. Number one would be uh, ice cold, apathy. Number 10 would be sizzling hot. And apathy would mean you're unaware of it or you are, but you're just disobedient. You don't care about the call to reach lost people. There's even perhaps a hostility. That's a one. Then you have a growing passion, which would be the growing awareness I'm talking about. Desire and prayer. You're trying to build relationship to gospel ends. Then there's the growing practice. Learn methods, trying and improving, conversations and actual invitations. Finally, growing impact and influence would be God is using you. People believe in Christ through you. You're a recognized leader. Now, I want everyone to take a moment and say, where would you place yourself in that continuum right now? Now, no smoke, no baloney, where would you be? I know when I filled this out, I said, like, I'm pro- when I start, like probably a four is where I, I put myself, which is kind of sad for a pastor, right? But it's, I had to be honest, right? There's been times it's been a lot higher. But one of the premises behind this is that if we start becoming aware of where we're at, then we can, we call it the one degree rule. You can, you can bump up. What if everyone bumped up one increment over the next three months? Maybe two by, by Christmas, right? Would you not say that that might do, might, be, might impact and put a massive dent into the kingdom of darkness? And I think probably one of the things they tell us, if, if somebody went from like a three to a 10, you can't really do that. It would last like, I don't know, 48 hours, right? We're talking about real life uh, style, substantive change. And I'm just asking you, where would you be on that? And then what I want to do is I just want to suggest a, very, a few practical ways you can raise your evangelistic temperature. And if we all do that, can, again, can you imagine the impact we would have? You can make a list. Here, here's, here's starters. And I, I really want to ask everyone to do this. Get out a sheet of paper, make a circle, one for work, or if you're a student, school. One for recreation. What is it you like to do? Um, one for neighborhood. And just every sphere of life you're in, make, draw a circle. And inside that circle, place the names of those that you then connect with in that sphere, okay? Pretty simple. Three or four names, whatever. Maybe ten, maybe one in each circle, whatever. But, but get those names of people who you have reason to believe are outside of Christ, who do not have the Son of God. Second of all, then just simply begin praying for them. Praying for their hearts for God to rip out the heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh. He doesn't do that without people, though. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We'll get to that. But start praying for the preparation of their hearts by the Spirit. Pray for opportunities. Paul asked the church at Colossae that they would pray that God would give them open doors of opportunity. And then pray for yourself to have the boldness to step into those opportunities. Acts chapter 4, when the Spirit filled them, they were filled with boldness. So you're going you're gonna to begin looking at circles of life, people who are outside of Christ. Then you pray for them. And then here, this is really like who would have thought of this strategy? Spend some time with them. Just spend some time with them. Some of that is just informal time. You're working in your yard and your neighbor's there. and You just, you just talk a little extra with them. Spend a little extra time with them. 
And sometimes it's going to be formal. You're specifically going to say, you're going to text them or call somebody and say, hey, I would like to take you out for lunch or would you like to go to the ball game or whatever your thing is. But spend time with them. So you make your circles, you pray for people in those circles, you spend time with them, and then how about this? Perhaps you can invite them to church. Now, there's wisdom. Sometimes I feel like it's appropriate to invite someone to church, and sometimes not. So this isn't a carte blanche thing, but that's one of the things you can do. And it's, in, 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 like a, in a place like, like our community where people are used to church, it's not outlandish to say, hey, do you want to come to church and have people to come who may still yet not be Christians? And then here's one. How about sharing the gospel with them? Just share the gospel with them. And I fear, and we have some training coming up to help you know how to do that, but if you're a Christian, you can tell people about the message of the cross because you wouldn't be a Christian otherwise. And I feel like today, I hear people say, well, how, do, how, would, I, how would I talk to somebody caught in this kind of sin, you know? Or how would I talk to somebody caught in this kind of sin? And my answer is, you just talk to them as an image bearer who needs Jesus, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you're just going to have to handle 1 Corinthians 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the power of God to those who are being saved. Share the gospel. How about this? Sixth of all, be accountable. Open up to your spouse. Open up to a parent or a child, a DNA member, a church member. Say, This is what God has laid on my heart. Here are some of the people in my circles, and I want to go after them and say, would you hold me accountable? Because the reality is, when I know that I I have to sort of give people the report every month, like tell me about the gospel conversations, honestly, it makes me more aware. It makes me more faithful. You know, when the six of us went to Oregon, we very foolishly took quite a hike the second, the the first full day on ground. What was it called? Uh, yeah, we went Misery Trail. How's that for a name? Like, that should have told us something. Let's take Misery Trail. I think it might have been my idea, too. Um, it's Smith Rock. And it was gorgeous, but we had, like, it was like a six-mile hike, and you go up, and you know what? We needed each other to get all the way to the top. Sometimes it was some good-natured joking. Sometimes, good-natured, good-natured. Sometimes it was a bottle of water. Sometimes it was just forging the trail ahead. But together, we were able to go farther than maybe, maybe individuals would have gone on their own, right? Accountability is a good thing. So be accountable. Let people know about what God is calling you to do in your spheres of influence. And then finally, this is indispensable. This is foundational. you got to preach the gospel to yourself. If you ain't celebrating the gospel in your own life, you're not going to share it with anybody else. Show me someone who has a dead life devotionally, and I will show you a person who has a dead life evangelistically, no matter how much training they've had. But you show me someone who really is celebrating the gospel in song, in personal devotional life, in their life. I will show you somebody who, however imperfectly, is seeking to tell others about the finished work of Jesus Christ for all who would believe. Now, listen, did you hear anything crazy or super innovative with that? Did you? Because if you did, somebody else wrote it on there. I didn't put it on there. This is basic stuff. But I really believe that if you 
apply yourself to this, to the power of the Spirit, we could raise our evangelistic temperature here, right? And we could see the baptismal waters all the, once again, get splashed all over the place. And people freeze their tail off. We do baptisms in the winter because we just use a little kettle water heater that really doesn't heat the water too much. And, but it doesn't electrocute you, so that's a win. Right? Like, if we could see the baptismal waters, again, once again be used as, as people come to faith in Christ. Now, I want to end here because it's already 12.09, and we want to celebrate the communion. The A was what? Awareness of lostness. The B was what? And then finally, C, simply this. Confidence that God will move through you. He will. I am super ashamed of how many opportunities I've missed in my Christian life. But I'm super thankful for all the opportunities God has been given me as I've simply done some of these things with my evangelism cohort. I could, I could give you many, many stories from the last even few months. Guys on, on my ball teams, I just, I play on a couple of baseball teams and I just want to be more intentional. I love baseball. I love hanging out with the guys on the baseball diamond, but I, I want to I, I be a Christian, right? Like in all of my life, and I want to tell them about Jesus. And so I've just been praying and not trying to say in the midst of the guys cracking, you know, a beer open, hey, I got a sermon to preach for you. You know, maybe some, God will call me to do that sometime. But they know who I am. I've talked to them about the Lord. And just, just a few weeks ago, maybe a month and a half ago now, one guy says right in the middle of a bunch of guys hanging out, end of a, a truck in a car, hey, do you know anything about Jehovah's Witness? Well, that's a gospel opportunity. And then he dropped this bombshell on me. He said, yeah, I don't know. I, I was raised Roman Catholic, and I was molested by a priest. I mean, right there in front of all the guys. Like, what do I do with that? Well, that was an opportunity to talk about the, the true Lord, right? I've got guys, and I had a guy who just called me. He said, hey, you know, a friend just passed away. Can you do the rosary? And I said, well, I don't quite do the rosary, but I might be able to help you. The rosary is a Catholic thing when I've had people now asking me for prayer, you know, to pray for them in various ways quite a bit more and more lately as I've applied myself to this. Um, I've, had, I've had an umpire come, which is crazy, me and an umpire. I'm not an umpire. I had an umpire come to a service. I've had, you, some of you have seen some of our players come to service who are probably mostly kind of like cultural Christians, you know? Again, and, I, and actually on the plane, I don't have that Rico Tice booklet anymore, and I, I want to get another one because I wasn't able to read the end of it, but there was a guy, and I'm tired. We didn't fly until like 8 at night, got in, and we got home like at 2.30 in the morning our time out west. I'm tired, and this guy shuffles by me. He's late to the plane. I said, how you doing? He says, terrible. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, what do I do with that? And I said, okay, I really want to just rest my head. I said, man, I know you don't know me from anybody, but if you want to talk, I'm here to talk. Well, he did. <laughs> we talked about two hours. He was a guy who was going to addiction recovery. His family was breaking up. He was hurting big time. And I just had a chance to tell him about Jesus. Now, again, I am not, don't get it twisted. I'm not telling you these stories because I'm a 10 or 9 or 8. I'm just saying, as through my cohort, I said, I need to be more faithful with these things, right? The, the circles and the prayer and the intentionality. And God is a God that wants to move through his people, and God is graciously answering that. But not only can we have confidence on a personal level, God will move through us. We can have confidence on a theological level. And with this, I close. 
Do you know that God, the Bible teaches God has chosen a people for his name from the foundation of the world? 